Welcome to We Need to Talk About Tech, where we talk about the past, present, and future of technology. Hello, everyone in podcast land. Today, we're talking about Toronto, Ontario, being ranked as the third largest tech hub in North America. We're talking about Carl Pay's company, Nothing, finally revealing nothing. And we talk about the Mac Studio and whether or not Apple is taking right to repair seriously. Short answer, no. All right. On to topic number one. Recently, the New York Times claimed Toronto, Ontario, pretty much the capital of Canada, as the third largest tech hub in North America. Now, in terms of population size, it's the fourth largest city on the continent of North America. And it's considered a quietly booming tech town, according to New York Times, which is pretty funny because like, it's not a town, it's a city, pretty big city. In terms of its tech hubbiness, I don't know if that's a, I don't think that's a term. <laughs> In terms of its tech hubness, it's trailing only New York City and Silicon Valley. Now, in the past, we've talked about Austin, Texas, how there's a whole tech boom going on there. A lot of companies and headquarters are moving to Austin, but now it seems like actually Toronto has surpassed Austin. Another popular one was Miami, you know, a bit warmer than things are in Toronto currently, at least. But yeah, this was a bit of a surprise when I heard it, when I read about it. It was a bit of a surprise, but it makes a lot of sense to me. Now, I guess from what you've heard, what you've read, were you surprised by hearing the news that, hey, Toronto, you know, this great, amazing city in North America is the third largest tech hub or did you kind of, did you already figure that? Uh, yeah, I was definitely surprised. Um, and, and first off, I'll say uh, calling Toronto the the capital of, of Canada pretty much will get a lot yeah. of Canadians really angry. I mean, it's uh, downtown Canada, right? <laughs> I'll get a lot of Canadians really mad. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's a cool city. Most and of our listeners are in the U.S. according to our statistics. So, yeah, I mean, it is a cool city um, and there is definitely a lot of expertise, uh, worldwide expertise, because it's a very, you know, uh, not just multicultural place, but a place where a lot of immigrants will land uh, so that they can lend their expertise. A lot of that comes from the infrastructure. Toronto, like you mentioned, is the fourth largest city in North America, the largest city in Canada, and it has a lot of a lot of perks for the you know highly skilled tech workers to kind of grow and thrive but overall to answer your question yeah i'm i'm very surprised by this i would have expected uh austin to be definitely higher on that list and and even some some other american cities like this is the thing california is such a big state with so many like specialized hubs from LA to, you know, San Francisco and stuff like that. To me, I would have imagined that there would have been more of an opportunity for tech to boom there, especially with the industries like Hollywood, like the video game market. And speaking of the video game market, which is so big in California, uh, I would have expected Montreal actually to kind of rival Toronto in the fact that it's kind of one of the fastest growing and, and powerhouses of the video game industry in North America. Um, even re just recently, Sony purchased a brand new studio with former devs from Ubisoft with expertise from Assassin's Creed and stuff like that. And they, you know, now have their first ever Canadian studio and it's out of Montreal, not Toronto. Uh, so yeah, it, it's, it's, this is kind of surprising to me. I definitely think that if this is happening, if there is really a tech boom in Toronto and it's starting to take hold, I haven't seen so much of it, um, but I do think that it's probably something that's happening all over. And I can't imagine Toronto holding that title for forever. Uh, I do think Montreal is definitely going to fight back in, in terms of the incentives that the the Quebec government um, specifically in Montreal, is giving 
for advancements in the arts, in the video game industry. And I, I don't really see that same investment coming from the city of Toronto. So it's, it's going to be interesting to see how this kind of takes hold and, 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 and plays out. For me, as someone who has been in the tech adjacent, I guess, uh, industry-wise, it's, it's definitely encouraging to hear because that is definitely a, a market where the expertise needed to grow in such a large city like Toronto the expertise I think was getting a little stagnant um, and a little stifled. This is, I think this is good news because that's only going to encourage more uh, high grade talent into the city uh, with the idea that there's going to be really good high level jobs uh, for people to, to actually, you know, stretch their legs in. And I think that could be a huge thing. And also for the homegrown kind of organizations, you know, there's a lot of telecom, in Toronto and in Canada overall, you know, Spotify, Shopify, which is probably the biggest e-commerce platform out there, really strong Canadian platform, you know, that's definitely going to help them. Obviously, we've seen the decline of, of BlackBerry. We don't want to see that happen to a lot of the other big, you know, tech companies in Canada. And I think getting really good expertise is going to be the number one thing for stopping that. But yeah, overall, I'm, I'm definitely surprised by it, but it's a pleasant surprise nonetheless. Now, on the topic of, of investment, mm-hmm. you know, one thing that I just found out about, apparently UFT, the University of Toronto, recently got a $100 million donation from local business leaders in order to build a complex that will house AI and biotech companies. This is like in the heart of downtown Toronto. Mm-hmm. You know, part of why... I guess Toronto, the GTA, and you know maybe adjacent cities are are becoming such tech hubs is because of universities like Toronto and the University of Waterloo are very known for pushing out, I guess people in you know science, technology, engineering, and math. They're yeah. very known for pushing out high quality candidates in those fields. Um, another thing that I just found out about. The Ontario government recently passed a law preventing tech companies from enforcing non-compete clauses. So that means that the market within tech in Toronto and well in Ontario at large is very competitive. So now it's not just, okay, we hired you, let's say Google hired you and your time at Google is done, but you can't work for one of our competitors for at least another six months. So Mm -hmm. you're not going to be as willing to leave us because you know you'll be out of work for six months. But now it could be, hey, you work at Google, you get a better offer from someone else, maybe you get a promotion, you leave Google, you work at Apple, you work at Apple for a bit, hey, maybe you get a better offer, you get another promotion, maybe you work for Snap. And I think that is setting up the tech market, at least, or the tech job market, to be very beneficial for people looking for work, as opposed to being you know, more beneficial towards employers and speaking of employers you know there's been a lot of american giant companies i guess that have been opening up offices and facilities north of the border as in canada you know Mm -hmm. moving their companies from the united states to canada companies like amazon netflix google has multiple facilities in toronto they're building new facilities in waterloo which is another tech hub Facebook, Microsoft, IBM, Wayfair, Stripe, TikTok, Reddit, all these companies are building new facilities, building new headquarters in Toronto. And I think the fact that all these big players, all these big companies are coming and there isn't a, you know, an enforceable non-compete, I think if you're a student, you know, a recently graduated student, not just from, you know, a school in Toronto, a school in Canada. But if you're a student from anywhere around the world, I think it's, it's looking very good or very lucrative, let's say, to work somewhere in Toronto, let's say. And another thing that the article mentions is because, and I think you mentioned this before, you know, Toronto is such a melting pot when it comes to cultures, when it comes to people immigrating. Our immigration laws are a lot more uh, I don't, for lack of a better term, they are a lot more lax than they are in the United States. It's a lot easier for
for a skilled immigrant to come and find work in Canada than it is to find work in the United States. So I think when you couple the fact that, okay, hey, this is a very, let's say, immigrant-friendly country, culture, there are a lot of job opportunities already, but there's, you know, growing job opportunities with all these big companies, all these big tech companies moving to Toronto, or let's say opening in Toronto. And then also you add the fact that, hey, there is not an enforceable non-compete. So if you are someone looking for work in the tech sector, this is like, this is a gold rush for you, right? Yeah, I think that's, those are some really good points. And specifically, the point on Waterloo, because uh, if anyone's listening, American maybe doesn't understand, Waterloo was the former uh, hub of BlackBerry, you know, one of the mm-hmm. biggest smartphone makers of yesteryear. And when they kind of started to dwindle, they had a ton of talent and expertise. And the fact is Waterloo is very close to Toronto, uh, kind of like a, a difference between like New York and maybe Buffalo, but closer. Uh, but a lot of that expertise needed somewhere to go. And a lot of that expertise had to leave the city of Waterloo. Some of it, you know, was able to stay there. I personally have, have some family who previously was at Blackberry. Um, and you know, there was a lot of, there was a lot of companies that kind of capitalized on that companies like Sonos, who, you know, a big tech giant in the, the sound, uh, surround sound market based out of California, you know, opened up offices to kind of capitalize on that talent that was left over from BlackBerry. And I think a lot of companies are starting to see that. Like, hey, there's a lot of talent from a lot of, you know, companies like BlackBerry, um, like Spotify, Shopify, keep saying Spotify, like (laughs) Shopify, um, which is based out of Ottawa, also in Ontario. Uh, So, you know, a lot of these companies that have a ton of talent and really proven talent that uh, there's a lot of opportunities to bring those those employees into your companies. And if you're starting a startup, there's also a lot of opportunity there as well because, you know, there's a lot of scraps that you can pick up from these companies in terms of infrastructure. Uh, you know, in, in order for uh, any city to be high-class, I guess, tech hub, it needs to have good infrastructure in terms of internet, you know, high-speed, good fiber connections, uh, consistency, and and reliability and you know i've definitely seen from you know telecom companies like rogers and telus bell there is definitely a focus on making sure that hey there's reliable opportunities for for companies to get proper connectivity options like fiber uh to their buildings and yeah that's definitely something that's necessary now i definitely think that this investment in tech in Canada in general, is going to catch on. It's not just going to be here. I think more and more places, like we, we mentioned uh, Texas, we know Texas is making that investment. Um, we've seen Elon himself making that investment. And I definitely think more and more cities who can afford to upgrade their infrastructure are going to make that investment because that's a really easy way to increase your economy. And it's a smart nice. way too. Um, so yeah, I definitely think there's going to be a lot more competition in the tech sector uh, going forward, as long as as a lot of these cities in North America can actually get the infrastructure down, yeah, I think so too. I don't know if Toronto will be able to stay the third largest tech hub in North America. I mean, I definitely don't see them surpassing New York or Silicon Silicon Valley. No, I could see them top five. Yeah, top five tech hubs. Like for the next decade, I can see top five tech hubs. I mean, if they become number one, hey, that'd be pretty amazing. But I'd say top five tech hubs. Toronto's too cold to be number one. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Earlier today, on Wednesday, March twenty third, Carl Pace Company, nothing. They finally had the press event that everyone was waiting for. We told you about it on our last podcast. You know, everyone's anticipating. They came out with the wireless earbuds last year. They're going to finally come out with the phone this year. They're going to have the event on the 23rd. The phone's going to come out in April. Everyone was anticipating it. And they revealed nothing. (laughs) Essentially nothing. They said, yes, 
you know, they, I, so the event was what, 30 something minutes. I want to say the first 15 minutes of the video was them just showing quotes of how great the earbuds were on screen. Kind of ridiculous, if you ask me. But they did reveal that, hey, we are coming out with a phone at some point this year. They said summer, I believe. Yeah. Uh, but not, we have a phone to show you. Not the phone is coming out in April like everyone thought it was going to be. What is actually coming out in April is a phone operating system. So they used this event to kind of show off the Nothing OS, which is their skin of Android. They showed it off and they said, hey, yeah, it's going to be available in April. I'm guessing for Android phones or maybe available for developers to work on. Although I would assume that developers would have already been working on it. Not that they would need to do too much because it's an Android skin. But needless to say, they did not reveal the phone. They had a big reveal that was, uh, I don't know how to put it, like a bunch of cryptic lines on the screen. Yeah. Um, uh, and they said that this will make sense later on at some point people are, you know, speculating because, you know, 2022, everything is being speculated and rumored and leaked. Some people think it could be a light strip on the back of the phone, you know, who knows what it could be, but they have, or Carl pay has made it clear that, Hey, this is pretty much the centerpiece of what we're trying to build. It took some shots at Apple, you know, directly calling out Apple and saying how they've built this walled garden that makes it very hard for people to, let's say, try other brands once you get locked into it. And they said they want to build a sort of ecosystem, but a more open ecosystem, I guess, to work with Samsung and work with Google and work with other Android companies. So it, they made it clear that, hey, we're not looking to take down OnePlus or other Android manufacturers, we are aiming at Apple. I guess, hey, if you're trying to start a new company, you kind of want to aim at the big dog, trying to get some respect. Yeah. But it was an interesting event. I feel like we didn't really get much out of it. You know, from what I've seen of the operating system, what they kind of, what they've shown off, it seems interesting. Um, they have the same sort of, I think it's the dot matrix theme to most of their fonts, to most of their their widgets, to most of their icons. It's an interesting look. And it's, I would say their entire OS seems very nostalgic kind of look to the operating system. And the thing that I thought was the coolest was their voice recorder. On screen, it was almost like a mini actual recorded tape that as you hit the record button, it would play and the tape would kind of spin and spin and spin. And then when you hit stop, you could not physically, but you could touch the image of the recording tape on the screen and rewind your playback like that. I thought that was pretty cool. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that bit of nostalgia in the digital world, I thought was pretty cool. But I don't know. What are your thoughts on the event at large? You know, we were expecting a phone. We we're expecting to see something. We got nothing from nothing, but what are your thoughts on the nothing OS? Yeah, so uh, first off, I'll say that um, there's an interview with Carl Pei on Wired. Uh, I'm glad I didn't watch the event. <laughs> um, I, I think the moment I kind of saw it, and well, the moment you mentioned it to me, I was kind of surprised that it happened because I hadn't heard anything. And I realized the reason why I hadn't heard anything is because they didn't show anything. Um, so I, I read a bit of it, the interview, Wired's interview with Carl Pei and some news stories around the event. And overall, there's a couple things that come to mind. One, based on what you just said there, I think you just explained to me why I really kind of vibe. And I guess most people, everyone, I guess, vibes with teenage engineering kind of style and, and design aesthetic. But for me, the reason why I think I respond to it so well is because it always reminds me of a cassette tape. And personally, I think cassette tapes are the coolest piece of tech ever. Um, Walkmans and stuff like that. It's just such a tactile uh, feeling thing. And from the clear plastic, some of them were like opaque, but you know, in the, the late days of cassette tapes, you can get these cool ones with clear plastic and you can put labels on it and label it and stuff like that. And that kind of gets me a little bit excited about the design, the potential design 
of this Nothing Phone 1. So, you know, although they didn't show it, there are a few things that I think they mentioned that are quite interesting. Like you mentioned, they do have the OS. The OS is going to be very close to stock Android, but with that dot matrix style kind of overlaid on top of it. And because they're gonna, it's going to be close to stock Android, they're going to promise up to three years of OS updates and four years of security updates for the phones. Now that's something something that's not common on the in the Android ecosystem. Unfortunately, uh, a lot of companies who make Android phones, especially on the budget side, tend to end updates relatively early in the product's life cycle, maybe even as early as a year into it. So you could have gotten, you know, a brand new phone in 2020 and all of a sudden you're not receiving any updates anymore, uh, which which is not great. They're promising, no, we're going to continue to support this device for at least three years and four years for security updates, which is great. Uh, and then the other thing you mentioned is those those designs that they showed. And those designs to me look a lot like MagSafe and like the design of the cases around MagSafe. And like you mentioned, Carl and nothing, the kind of whole methodology around this conference, at least from what I could take from it, seemed to focus around the idea of targeting Apple, like you said. And there was some mentions of hey, they want AirPods to work out of the box with the Nothing phone. They want to be kind of an alternative to Apple for people who are in the Apple ecosystem. And at the same time, they want to build an ecosystem of their own. They've already uh, partnered with companies like Samsung, like Google, and like uh, Snapdragon. It's, It's confirmed it's going to be a Qualcomm Snapdragon chip powering this device. But they definitely want to be able for this product to appeal to uh you know, people who who may have used an iPhone in the past. And I think if they kind of, if they're looking to that direction and based on those kind of glyphs that they've shown, I wouldn't be surprised if we get a phone that has this clear back that has like a MagSafe kind of style to it where it has a ring where maybe you can attach a wireless charger magnetically like you can with MagSafe. And Mm -hmm. it shows you an outline of maybe where the camera is and you know, where a speaker might be or a vibrating motor or something like that, or a haptic engine. I think that's what they want to go for. And Mm -hmm. I would be really happy if that is the case, because as much as I'm not the biggest fan of iPhones, I think when the iPhone 12 originally came out and we talked about on this podcast, I thought MagSafe was super cool. And I thought the design of MagSafe and how it worked and even the cases, especially the clear clear case, I just like that design aesthetic. And I really like the design aesthetic of the Nothing Ear Ones. I think a combination of both of those things on a phone could be incredibly cool. But uh, this that's all speculation for now. The, the reality is this event happened. They didn't show a phone. They announced that the phone is coming in summer. And I imagine that this event was designed to get people interested in investing in Nothing. Because mm-hmm. if you go to their website right now, the first thing that you, that you see is a call to action, essentially, for people to invest in their company. Um, and I don't know if I necessarily agree with that that kind of style. I would rather have them shown a product before they start asking for money. But they were able to release the Nothing Ear Ones. They seem like they might be a legit company. Uh, so I don't know. It, it's just it's a little off-putting for me, but I imagine... I imagine they, they'll probably be able to execute and hopefully we see this phone sooner rather than later. Yeah. I mean, speaking on that investing point, you know, it's when they were talking about how successful their ear ones were doing, then they mentioned, you know, they brought up the first round of, of, I guess what consumer funding was. Um, it was, I think March of 2020. I'm trying to think like, Man, they said that we had our first round of consumer funding. It's like, what? I didn't know about this. What? I definitely would have invested in this if I had the opportunity to. Like, yeah, it was in March 2020. It's like, oh, it's probably a little bit, you know, concerned with other things, March 2020. Yeah. Um, like we, I think they said the round was for $1.5 million. That's how much they were trying to raise. And they fulfilled that in 54 seconds. So less than a minute. So, you know, wasn't open for very long. Mm. And 
then they said, hey, you know, we have a second round of funding coming up and it's April 5th and it's going to be for 10 million. So more people can invest. And I'm like, oh, wow, that sounds really cool. Like I would definitely be interested in investing now. You know, you guys piqued my interest. I can't wait to see what the phone looks like. And then there's no phone. So I was like, it kind of, you imagine like a roller coaster, you know, you bring you up, bring you up. Oh, you know, last funding sold out so quickly. Our earphones do so well. Second round of funding is coming out. We're going to show you our phone. It's just an, a bunch of symbols on the screen. It's like, all right, yeah, you lost my interest again. Yeah. But, you know, mentioning how it does kind of resemble MagSafe and how it could be the back of the phone, I think... I know. I think that's that's breaking news right there. Because now that you say it, and I look at the the symbol, it definitely looks like it could be the back of the phone. You know, it definitely looks like it could be some sort of alignment for either some sort of magnetic, you know, safe way of charging, or even for the something like the Air Ones to connect to the back of the phone. Not you know necessarily connect but to align on the back of the phone. So you could yeah, have, yeah, let's yeah. say, cross-device charging too. I could definitely yeah, see something cool. like that happen. Yeah. And now I'm now I'm looking forward to mock-ups of, okay, hey, we think this is what the phone is going to look like based off of what we saw from nothing on their March 23rd event. But I am definitely intrigued. If I was still using an Android device, I would probably be interested in trying out, you know, the nothing OS, but I don't think they're, I don't think they are going to make it available for iPhone. And I definitely don't think iPhone would let it be available for iPhone. So, uh, yeah, I'm just going to have to, maybe you'll try it out and you'll let me know how it is. Well, I mean, I've said for a long time, I think stock Android is overrated. Uh, I think a lot of the third party manufacturers do Android better than stock Android. And that started with OnePlus. OnePlus, when they decided, they first came out with the OnePlus One and decided to go with CyanogenMod, that was the best version of Android at that time. And it was based off stack, stock Android, but much more customizable. And I think nowadays with things like Samsung's One UI, especially their new version of One UI 4.1, which just came out, and you know what Xiaomi's doing and what Huawei used to do. I think Huawei used to have a great OS as well. Um, not anymore. Harmony OS is, is very different from Android now. Uh, even though it's built off a similar inf- uh, structure, it doesn't have the Play Store and Google Play services, which kind of makes it not great. But uh, this makes me wonder, okay, they mentioned stock Android. To me, that's more of a, a downside than if they said, we're going to take the Android level or the Android ecosystem or operating system to another level, which I think is something that needs to happen. The only way I could see this being really, really cool is if they mention they're partnering with 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 Google, if they get Nexus, not Nexus, Pixel, Pixel level features on this device day one. Things like call screening and, you know, the, the really have heavy assistant features that you only get on a Pixel device right now. Uh, or even the stuff that you only get on Samsung phones, like the the new Duo features and stuff like that. Uh, I think that is going to be key. But yeah, uh, you know, I'm I'm cautiously optimistic for this phone. I think the design overall is what I'm the most interested in. And if they ship it with the potential of an unlocked bootloader, where you could potentially load your own OS on it if you really want to, uh, to me that's that's the key. And I really hope that they they get the price. Uh, Right. I'm kind of curious. Nothing's a new company. They have the ear ones. Uh, You know, we talked a bit about the potential price of this device, of what it could be, considering that the ear ones were a little bit closer to the budget side. What would you want this phone to list for to be interesting to you or even to people around you where you could be like, oh, I could recommend that phone? I think I said this on the last podcast. I would want to see it at the same price as a Pixel 6. Mm. I think that would be a great price. I think that'd be a great entry price, especially for your first phone. I think in today's market, and especially if you look at, okay, hey, they have co-designing from Teenage Engineer. They just got Dyson's former head of design. Like they have, they're definitely not uh, 
a grassroots company mm-hmm. right now, you know? So I could, I would say I don't expect him to be under 599. I don't expect him to be under 600. I hope they aren't too far over 600, but I could see $600 being a very reasonable price. And then I would be interested to see, okay, spec for spec, where do they compete with something like the Pixel 6? Mm-hmm. Um, I think, and you know, this is all speculation, but I think design-wise, they could definitely outdo the Pixel 6. I think, you know, at first the Pixel was very polarizing. I grew to like it. I know not all, not everyone likes the design or even loves the, the design of it, but I think $600 would be a good price for your first device. And hopefully your second, third, and fourth device. Mm. And I hope that they do something like, you know, throw in a pair of the the ear ones with it mm. and keep it at the $600 price. So we say, hey, the first thousand people, or maybe not even the first thousand, you know, the first people who pre-order this before the launch date or who pre-order this in the first week, get a free pair of the nothing ear ones. So that way... Yeah, it's six hundred dollars, but it's like it's technically five hundred dollars because you're throwing in a pair of earphones with it, and then two, you're getting your earphones out there because you're trying to make you know you're trying to make your devices more popular. You're trying to make your devices the new status quo. So I think in terms of visibility for them, it would be a great thing to promote. Yeah, and I think in terms of you know value for the consumer, it's like hey, we're not too sure on how this phone is going to be, but we've heard good things about the headphones. So like worst case scenario, I mean like $600 for a decent pair of headphones is a bit steep, but like at least, you know, the headphones are going to be decent, I guess. What would you like to see this phone enter at though? Uh, I'm a little conflicted uh, on that, on that point. Like for me personally, I don't know if I could personally purchase a phone that's above the 399 price point. Uh, that's just where I've bought, purchased most of my phones is honestly under the, the $300 price. And but I've never been... is your limit? Mostly, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I, I don't know. It, it's it's just one of those things where even though that that is my limit, I don't necessarily think that that's where they have to list this phone. I don't even necessarily think that if it, if it was a full flagship device, as long as, you know, the teenage engineering and the design kind of aesthetic uh, resonates with people, I think they could potentially charge whatever they want because if I've seen anything from teenage engineering products in the past is that they're very expensive, but people buy them because they're cool as hell. And, uh, you know, if they can take it a step further from the nothing ear ones to for this phone to be, you know, on that level of cool, I think it's going to draw a lot of people's attention. So if they announce their phone, they say it is going to be three ninety nine. Mm-hmm. Are you gonna buy it? If by some miracle my phone broke, then yeah, I probably. Oh, whoa, whoa. <laughs> okay, what if it's three ninety nine? We throw in a pair of the nothing ear ones, so it's like technically three hundred. Do you buy it? No. Oh, okay. But but I I definitely think that that could be a good basis of well when my phone does go bad and I need a, a new phone nothing is going to be at the top of my list for the companies that I look at for my next phone for me personally. But uh, yeah, I, I don't necessarily think that that's a smart move. I think going more higher end, like you mentioned, pixel price or even higher is definitely smarter for the longevity of the company. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, so the last few podcasts we talk, uh, we talked about Apple's recent event, their peak performance event and some of the coolest products that have come out of them. Uh, last week, we talked about reviews of the Mac Studio and the Studio Display, and we got some more information about the Mac Studio very recently with some teardowns. Uh, uh, YouTubers from iFixit to uh, Short Circuit to Luke Miani all got their hands on multiple versions of the Mac Mini, and they opened them up to look to see what's inside. And to a lot of people's surprise, this thing is a little... A little strange and I actually want to give you credit because you mentioned that there the potential of the Mac Pro could 
you know, maybe see some kind of modularity in the future. We don't know exactly what that would look like, but, you know, potentially a, a slightly more modular device. And, you know, in the last podcast I mentioned, I'm kind of really excited to see the teardown because I would be curious to see if they lay the groundwork for a potentially more modular pro device down the line in this device. And it turns out they might have because this is the first version of the Apple Silicon era of Macs that has removable storage. The Mac Studio does have removable storage on it, uh, but there's a problem, unfortunately. So actually, let's rewind a bit. Not only does the Mac Studio have removable storage, but it also has two storage slots, one of them that is not populated. Some of the people who have teared down these machines have speculated that potentially if you get the higher capacity versions, like the 8 terabyte, Maybe both of those uh, sockets are populated and in the lower storage versions, it's just the one uh, the one storage chip. But from what we've seen from these teardowns, if you take one of these chips from the Mac Studio and populate that second empty slot, the system will not boot. It will just error out. Uh, not only that, but these chips that are in the, the storage chips that are in the Mac Studio are proprietary to Apple. And as a matter of fact, they are controllerless chips. And what that means is generally with an SSD, your SSD will have its flash modules and a controller uh, on the same stick or drive, essentially, so that it can be used with any machine. Apple's machines actually have the controller built into the actual M1 chip. So the storage that plugs into the M1 chip, especially if it's a soldered on uh, storage like it is with all of the other products, they don't need uh, their own separate controller because that's already a part of the processor. Now with these removable versions of the storage, they also don't have controllers because the controller is a part of the processor, but because they're not soldered on, that gives a little bit more distance between the actual chip and the controller. So this does lead to a couple of downsides. For example, uh, a little bit slower speeds, marginally slower speeds on the socketable drives. So it, it begs the question, well, what is the benefit then? If these drives are potentially a little bit slower and you know that second slot isn't really usable uh, if you put uh, another drive in it, what was the point of having these removable storage on this machine? And that's really the question. I think a lot of people are stuck scratching their head as to why you would engineer a machine that has removable storage, but make it so that you can't do anything with that removable storage. And it came to the point where a lot of these, a lot of these YouTubers who tried to break down this device and figure out what you could actually do with this, they tried so many different options. One tried to upgrade the storage by taking a higher end version of the Mac Studio with a, a larger storage drive and populate the, uh, you know, a lower end version with that higher storage and the machine wouldn't boot. Uh, so you can't upgrade the storage as of right now. If you buy, uh, you know, a, a one terabyte version and you run out of space and you decide, well, you know what, I want a two terabyte version. Not only can you not put that storage in the second slot, but you also can't just upgrade the storage in the main slot either. The only thing that was able to be done is iFixit was able to take an identical SSD from an identical spec version of the Mac Studio, essentially both entry-level versions, and they were able to swap the chips and it would work. So essentially what's happening here is these machines are locking their storage down to only the size that you originally got when you ordered that machine which I don't know if that makes any sense. To me, this this brings me back to, to that rant a couple podcasts ago where I think this is kind of insulting. This is one of those things where right to repair has been a thing and Apple engineered a machine that had removable storage but put, seems to have put software locks on the ability to for you to actually upgrade your storage and limit on what you can actually change your storage for. And that doesn't even go into a lot of the other issues. Like, for example, it, if you open up this machine, uh, you could potentially damage the rubber ring. You actually essentially have to tear that off in order to get to the screws to open it up. Um, and also, 
the first thing that you have to take out when you open up the, the Mac Studio is the power supply, which would be fine, except the power supply is completely unprotected. It's completely exposed. And if anyone has ever worked with power supplies before, I, I, I would imagine you're aware that these things can be incredibly dangerous, uh, especially, you know, in the hands of people who are not uh, comfortable with working with electronics. And the fact that this is a power supply that's shipping in a machine that's completely exposed is quite concerning. And it goes to show that Apple really doesn't want you opening this machine. And they're trying to do everything to make sure that you don't open this machine, despite the fact that it is our first glimpse at a potential upgradable Mac going forward. Um, so yeah, I don't know. This this kind of really... This was interesting in one hand, but also really annoying and on the other hand uh, from my point of view. But I'm curious... Have you seen any of this information about, you know, the Mac Studio getting torn down and this removable storage? And do you have any opinions of it at all? Um, I have seen some of it. It's definitely, first of all, I'm surprised that it actually does have upgradable storage. Mm. I was very surprised to see that, you know, in their presentation, in their event, they said, oh, yeah, the modular Mac Studio. And I was like, what are you talking about modular? This is a brick. It's Nothing modular about this. But, I mean, as you said, you remove a ring here, you remove a power supply there, you remove another piece of metal there. You can, the, you know, the storage is somewhat modular. At the moment, it's limited to you have to replace it with the same exact module from identical device. But to Apple's credit, it is modular. And you brought up, something interesting there too. You know, it seems like right now it's software limited. Maybe Apple, for whatever reason, didn't expect people to open up their Mac studio so quickly and want to start swapping in SSDs. So they're like, oh, you know, hey, we're going to release that in a future software update. You guys kind of jumped the gun on it. Maybe, you know, if I had to play devil's advocate. But I think this is a good sign for the future. Um, the future as in future Apple products, not for the future of this product because, mm -hmm. yeah, not very sustainable if you ask me. But I think it's a good sign for the future of future Apple Silicon products. You know, as you said, this is still the M1 chip. This is still, you know, the transition of Apple products onto Apple Silicon from Intel chips. So we're at the very beginning of it. And I guess, you know, on the bright side, they have a somewhat modular device already. Assuming whenever they do come out with the Mac Pro, you know, their their big boy desktop, it will be fully modular. Mm -hmm. If it isn't, I, I hope that everyone, every reviewer and every professional, you know, quote unquote professional that Apple markets to, I hope that everyone just, you know, riots in the streets and, you know, in the long story short, I'm surprised that it was modular to begin with. I'm not surprised that it's locked behind software right now. Another interesting thing that I saw in some of the reviews is that, hey, these ports, you know, the, the Thunderbolt ports or the SD card reader, all of these are actually pretty modular too. You know, they, yes. they're easy enough once you as you put it, you know, you remove the rubber strip, take off the back, remove the power, the, the, the power supply. It's fairly easy to remove the ports, but then it also had me thinking like, Hey, are these going to be, you know, software locked too? So that if I take, let's say if someone happens to have a broken Mac studio already, um, that isn't covered under Apple care already. And they want to take a, C port from this broken one, put it into my other one or two from a, let's say a brand new USB-C port, put it into my broken one. I would assume that that would be device locked, that unless you bring it directly to Apple, even if let's say you have the skills to open it up, to get to the ports, to remove them safely, replace it safely, I would assume that would be device locked. But, you know, maybe in a, in a dream world with a couple software updates, you can replace those yourself, no problem. You can replace the SSD yourself, no problem. You could expand the storage yourself, no problem. Maybe we get that at some point, you know, with a software update. But as we were kind of talking about before 
we started recording the podcast, there are a lot of things that get promised from Apple, from other device manufacturers, from other software manufacturers, as you know, these big flashy new features, these new software features that don't necessarily get shipped with the products. Yeah. And then it's, oh, you know, at a later point, we'll you push out a software update so you can do what we were talking about. But that either never happens or if it does, it happens much later than it was supposed to or it's not as good as they said it was going to be. It's not as revolutionary revolutionary as they said it was going to be. Yeah. So, you know, I'm not going to hold my breath waiting for Apple to release the software update that allows you to expand the storage yourself or even replace the storage yourself. But it's nice to see that there is at least the, you know, the skeletons of that in their current desktop product. So that hopefully when they come up with their, you know, their actual desktop, that is something that is already there because they've, they've laid the groundwork for that already. But I'm um, so, yeah, bring it all in conclusion, surprised that it is modular at all. I'm not surprised that it's locked behind software. Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of, it didn't even occur to me because you're right. It, it the, every port on this uh, Mac studio is completely modular. It's on its own separate board. It can be removed. It has a removable uh, socket on the actual board where you can take it out and hopefully replace it. If there was some kind of software lock preventing that, that would be absolutely horrible because quite frankly, say that a lot, but <laughs> the reality is the this machine is the most modular Mac that has existed in years and other than the Mac Pro. And that would be an amazing win if they weren't using software to kind of mess with that. And I would love to be optimistic to say that, oh, hey, yeah, they're going to release a software update that's going to fix this and it's going to be great uh, and everything's going to be modular and you're going to be able to buy SSDs from Apple at any size after the fact and or, or maybe even send it into them because I imagine they don't want consumers replacing it themselves uh, from risk of injury, which is unfortunate. I feel like this could have been designed in a way where consumers could have been able to swap out their SSDs uh, by making the ports at the bottom uh, of the device, but they didn't do that. But regardless, if there is an opportunity to upgrade after the fact, that's great. The one reason why I'm kind of hesitant about that is the other studio device, the studio display, there's been some unboxings of that. And when people have taken it out the box, they've noticed that the cable is attached to the display, which is very strange. I, I don't know if I've ever seen a monitor or a TV or anything for that matter in, in recent history where the power cable was attached to the display. And it looks like it was the case with the studio display. Now, on Apple's website, it says specifically that the cable is non-removable. But it turns out if you pull hard enough, you can actually remove the cable. It's a proprietary cable for specifically this display. And the funny thing is, you not only do you have to pull really hard to get this cable out, but they actually designed a tool <laughs> for the Genius Bar when you take your device to Apple to take out the cable, which I think is, is I don't know about you, but to me that sounds ridiculous. There's been no other display where you've needed a tool to take out the power cable. There is no reason why you should need a tool to take out the power cable. And there's no reason to suggest that this device needed a cable that needed to be, you know, permanently installed anyways. So to me, that kind of shows that shows that Apple really, really doesn't want consumers to be able to fix their own devices, which is one, I think, insulting because they're taking things that have been easily accessible and easily upgradable for people in the past uh, and making it difficult. But also, I think it's it's really kind of gross and and messed up because they are engineering ways for you not to fix your things. They are engineering ways to make it more difficult to fix your things. They're putting energy. I think Linus uh, of Linus Tech Tips talked about this. They're actually putting energy and money into making sure that you can't fix your own devices or upgrade your own devices or even get a longer cord for your That's own true. device. That's true. And that's really weird. Like, I don't know. I, to me, that just seems really weird. 
yeah. Um, I mean, I guess I never thought about it in that way. Like, hey, they are designed in a way to make it harder for you to fix this thing. You know, in the reviews and the teardowns that I've seen of the studio display, you know, people were joking that like, hey, this is fixed permanently. Mm-hmm. TVs from the 2000s didn't all have power cables that were fixed permanently. Why do we have a display from 2022 that is permanently fixed to it? You know, what if your dog chews on the cable? What if your cat chews on the cable? What if you run over it with, you know, with a vacuum? What if your Roomba runs over it, right? And instead of, okay, this is a power cable that I could get from any store, any electronic store, or even at the worst, I have to get this power cable strictly from Apple, but at least I can remove it and replace it myself. But now it's you have to bring in this entire display, this entire $1,600 display to Apple in order for them to use a tool that they designed just to make, just to remove this. Like it, it doesn't make any sense. Like you're right. Research and development went into making this harder to remove when it really could have been used somewhere else. Um, I know a lot of people were thinking that, hey, when you look at the back, because I think the, you know, the um, the press photos that they showed before, right? They didn't have the power cable fastened to the back of it. Yeah. But it looks exactly like the back of the iMac. And people were probably thinking, oh, this probably has that same mag safe plug or whatever they ended up calling it, which everyone was in love with that plug. It's an amazing idea mm-hmm. because they admitted that, hey, you know, People may be walking behind this. People may trip over it. We don't want your computer to go flying off the table because someone accidentally tripped over your cord. But apparently now they don't care if people trip over the cord. Like, yeah, I don't know. It's very strange, but it's also very Apple to do something like that. But yeah, I don't know. A little bit troubling to see. And that doesn't even talk about the stand that you have to order from day one. (laughs) Yeah, because you can't change it after the fact unless you send no, it th- to Apple. No, I think you can bring it back to Apple. You can bring it back to Apple to have it changed, but you can't. You can't. God it. forbid you do yeah. it yourself. <laughs> it's 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 really weird and, and kind of I don't know. I think it's really really odd and troubling. But uh, who knows? I th- I hopefully this is a sign that um, people are getting fed up with this kind of anti repair narrative that apple is is kind of putting out there with their products and maybe they're forced to kind of change tune especially because they're a company that talks so heavily about being environmentally friendly making sure your products can't be fixed by its users is not environmentally friendly in any way definitely not definitely not i mean did you want to bring up your theory that you kind of brought up before the podcast or before we started recording that you know, from the teardowns that we've seen, this studio display, you know, quote unquote display, is laid out very similar to an iMac. And you were actually saying that you think it was supposed to be an iMac Pro, but then, you know, maybe supply chain issues or some you know, other thing happened. And instead of becoming an iMac Pro, instead of getting some sort of, you know, M series processor, M1 series processor put inside. They said, hey, we're going to just have to put in A13 Bionic in it because we got a bunch left over because now we're not making the iPhone SE with them anymore. So we got all these chips laying around. <laughs> let's stick them in the iMac or sorry, let's stick them in the studio display. And yeah, I charge $1,600 for it. Yeah, this is th- th- that's definitely something I think was happening here. And, and, you know, we talked about it a little bit on the last podcast. You mentioned hey, the the camera on this studio display is not very good. And it seems like it's a very similar camera that you would expect from like an iPhone or something like that. Um, So it should be better. And I I think the reason why it's probably not as good as it is, and maybe hopefully this is also the reason why storage isn't swappable on the Mac Studio, is this product might have been a little bit rushed, specifically with the studio display. because I imagine from what I've seen, it looks like it was a product that was designed to be an iMac Pro. And based on the heft and the the kind of cooling mechanism that's in the studio, the Mac Studio that has the M1 Ultra, I wouldn't be surprised if they struggled with cooling the M1 Ultra in this 
this kind of chassis and this form factor. So maybe they just decided to scrap it overall and turn it into just a studio display. But the reality is this is a display that has a chip in it. It has the A13. And not only that, it runs iOS. It's it's it runs iOS. It, it's pretty much a full computer. And when you open it up, it looks like a full computer. Uh, and I imagine it was kind of like a late decision to say, okay. And you're probably right. It could have been supply chain as well. Maybe they just had, you know, they didn't have enough chips to make both products uh, viable. And they decided to go with the the more pro level version with the Mac Studio. Uh, but yeah, I could definitely see that a lot of the issues we're seeing might be the, the result of they had a, an original plan. It was an iMac Pro. They realized that they couldn't pull it off. So they canceled the iMac Pro and decided to make the studio display instead. And, uh, you know, a lot of what we're seeing with the issues with the camera and stuff like that are hopefully temporary because once they, they get this product out there and software updated on it, and it does take software updates. I have seen reviews talk about the moment they got it out the box, they did have to update the display. So, um, you know, things like that. I imagine hopefully the camera gets better and maybe this could be a sign that I've heard some people speculate that we won't see a iMac Pro. I'm hoping this is a sign that we do see a bigger version of the iMac in the future in this chassis and hopefully um, potentially getting rid of that base level iMac altogether and having this chassis be just an iMac because I do think the 24 inch screen is a little bit small, but also I think the, the base level iMac is very overpriced, unfortunately, for what it is. And I think they can do a lot better. Um, and I think this this Mac Studio, as much as it's not a great display um, in terms of price to performance, I think if it was a whole on computer, uh, it could be definitely a much better uh, value proposition overall. Yeah, I think definitely if you, I mean, if they put, let's say, an M1 Pro or even an M1 Max in it, I doubt the price would remain the same. But if they did, that would make a lot more sense. Yeah. Right? Because, like, in terms of technical specs, it's not really better than the iMac, mm -hmm. than the, the entry-level iMac. But if you say, okay, hey, yeah, you have an M1 Pro and an M1 Max, uh, you know, a three inches bigger diagonally, you have a better camera, better speakers, all of that combined makes it a better product. But the fact that, you know, it's, it's, I don't know, it's essentially like a giant tablet that doesn't have a touchscreen kind of makes it not worth that much money. But I do, you know, I definitely, I'm going to run with the conspiracy theory that this was supposed to be, this was supposed to be the iMac Pro. And there were some issues that they ran into. And maybe that's why all the leakers and reviewers were like, oh, the iMac Pro is coming. It's coming. Well, it was supposed to come. And, you know, all their sources probably said, hey, there is the 27-inch device that I've been telling you about. It's coming out. It has an ARM processor inside. Don't worry. Like, I'm not lying to you. They just didn't realize it was an A13 and not an M1 Pro. Yeah. But, yeah, I think if this was, I mean, even if, one more thing I want to say. Mm -hmm. I get that people want an official Apple display. I get that. Definitely get that. You know, it goes with the aesthetic and all that stuff, especially if you get into Mac Studio. But why would you buy multiple displays with multiple webcams? Mm. That's one thing that kind of bothered me this whole time. Like, let's say if I, if I have to have the studio displays, I don't want like three webcams looking at me. That doesn't really make any sense. Like I don't even want one webcam looking at me to be honest, but like, I think there should have been, and this obviously runs into supply chain issues. If we're running with the theory that, Hey, this was, wasn't even supposed to be just a display. This was supposed to be a Mac, uh, iMac pro. Right. But I think there should have been two versions of this. There should have been, one version maybe that was just the, just the display without the camera in the front, maybe with less impressive speakers. And then you could have had a pro version with the camera, with the speakers. So maybe if you wanted to outfit your setup with Apple official studios, you didn't need 
a bunch of webcams staring at you. You didn't need all these speakers also, right? But hey, like I've said before, I'm not running Apple. I obviously don't think the way that Tim Cook thinks and all the people over there. So that's what I'd do though. I mean, I, I think you're 100% right. And I, and I want to just throw it out there. Also, the back studio or the studio display is not able to be daisy chained. So, yeah, a, which is really weird, right? So it's essentially not made to have multiple monitors, which is dumb because why wouldn't it? It's if it's truly for a studio, why yeah. wouldn't you be able to do that? Because, yeah. yeah, someone was I think it was I think it was um, short circuit. Mm-hmm. They're saying that like, hey, yeah, let's say if you want to hook up your MacBook Pro your 14-inch M1 Max MacBook Pro to this, in order to run each display, you would need to use each one of the three USB-C ports on it. Yeah, yeah. Just to, to connect to this displays. display, and then you wouldn't have any ports left over. <laughs> no, Well, no Thunderbolt. I, I guess you would have to use the ones on the back of the monitors, but even then, like, that's... But those are Thunderbolt, then. Yeah, that's yeah. true. It, it's, there's one thing, one more theory that I'll bring up here. And this, I'm, I'm kind of curious to see if this is a product you'll be interested in because there is a product that Apple uses that runs an A12 Bionic, which is a one processor uh, worse than what the studio display has. And it's the Apple TV 4K. And it makes me wonder if just like how the Mac studio could be a precursor for what the Mac Pro could be, could the studio display be a precursor for what a full-fledged Apple TV that is a full display that you stick on your wall could potentially be powered by a 13 bionic having speakers built in potentially being a 55 65 maybe even 75 inch display that you put on your wall that's all integrated and you get from the factory with either a stand or a vase amount um but you know could this be the precursor for the apple tv that everyone has been wanting for so long, like an actual TV from Apple. That's a very interesting theory, but I don't think Apple ever does it. Mm. Just because, I don't know, I don't think Apple wants to make TVs, if that makes sense, like the Mm. actual screen. Mm -hmm. Um, I think they like the Apple TV product they have right now, simply because it's like a gateway to their services. Yeah. I think if they were, I don't know, some other way that they could, let's say, get all their services on your phone, stream directly to your TV without having to have the Apple TV product, I think they would prefer that. But then that would mean a lot more integration with TV manufacturers and blah, blah, blah. So the Apple TV exists as it is. I don't think they want to actually sell displays especially not that large although would be a great product i think it'd be i would be very interested in that just you know to see what it would be like but definitely not to see what the price would be like oh it would be expensive no i was just gonna say there's a lot of things that i think apple would do really great that people want to see like you know like a display like you said like an actual tv display People have said, why don't they make actual speakers, not the HomePod, like actual speakers, let's say monitor speakers, yeah, and even a camera, right? Because if mm-hmm. you look at what they're able to accomplish with a phone, this a phone, this this device is made for, well, I guess made for computational, you know, computational things now, and you know, it just so happens to take really good photos. How good would a Apple product made just for taking pictures be yeah, or for recording video be, but those are three things that I don't think they're ever going to do because it's not, I doesn't seem like it's in Apple's vision. Yeah. I, I, I definitely don't disagree with you, but for the sake of just intrigue and, and interest, what I will do is I'll make a prediction and I'll mm-hmm. say in maybe the next one to three events, we will see Apple do what they always do, open with their Apple TV Plus subscription and, you know, what's going on there. And then right after that, they're going to talk about their brand new cinema display that has an A13 Bionic in it. And it's a large TV that is automatically going to show you the content on Apple TV Plus 
the way the filmmaker intended it to look. And it's going to be the best viewing experience you've ever seen. It's going to be magical. And everyone who buys this $4,000 TV is going <laughs> to get three months of Apple TV Plus for free. Uh, yeah. I think really it's great, happen. great bargain. Yeah. Three months is two months. One one month. One month. <laughs> one month free. You said the next one to three events? One to three events. Yeah. I think it's coming sooner rather than later. Okay. So we're having WWDC. We're going to have a September iPhone event. So then you think in, if they have an event after that, which is probably going to be a November yeah. Mac Pro event, if Mac I had Pro to event. guess. Mm-hmm. So you think November yeah. this year? I do. Wow. Bold prediction, people. You heard it here first. Stick that in your pipe and smoke it. <laughs> uh, take it easy, everyone in podcast land. Catch you in the next episode. <laughs> <laughs>